Thank you, Pastor Hood. Praise the Lord, everybody. It is a good thing to be in the house of the Lord today. And my, isn't it good just to be able to feel what we feel in this place today? We're in a good place, and I thank the Lord for His goodness. You could be seated momentarily. I'm going to preach you in just a moment, but I want to say that it is a tremendous honor to be here in Carson City uh, with this wonderful church. I've been hearing about you guys for a lot of years, and it's just incredible the way God is raising up a tremendous group of worshipers, godly people right here in the state of Nevada. Now, this is my first time to preach in this state. I've traveled through the state many times. And in fact, when my wife and I got married uh, 22 years ago this week, and, uh, we, uh, we took part of our honeymoon in Las Vegas. And, and uh, of course, we didn't. We didn't go there to gamble. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's how it is around the country. When you talk about going out here to Nevada, everybody thinks you're coming out here to sin and go to the casinos and do crazy stuff. But isn't it just like the providence of God that in a place that has been known as a stronghold for sin and evil and debauchery, that God would put together a church and a group of people who are committed and sold out to righteousness and godliness. And I can definitely feel the momentum that is here with this congregation. And we are just crazy about your pastor and first lady, uh, brother and sisterhood of dynamic people as he already referenced they came to Memphis and preached at our church for a long time and to the point our congregation loved them so good they was about to vote me out and vote him in and, and, uh, it's a dynamic uh, preaching and in fact he did not know this until last night uh, but here uh, about three years ago church had grown to the point I needed, uh, well, maybe it's four years ago, it was before they were here, our church had grown to the point uh, where I started praying earnestly for an assistant pastor, and I put together a list, and the number one name on that list was uh, Brother Evan Hood, and uh, I went to the point of calling his bishop to inquire about that, somehow it never came together, and guess God had other plans and bigger plans, uh, but that just lets you know how much I think about them, and they're tremendous people and doing great work, and good to be here with some kinfolk, uh, my wife's uncle and aunt, Dan and Deb, cousin Coy, Marsha, love you guys. Well, we're going to 
go to the word of the Lord. Today is a giving service. We do this at home once a year, just like you guys. It's a great deal. As you've already received these pledge cards, um, at the end of the service, we'll just let it unfold. We'll give you a chance to fill that out, put your name and the amount that you feel led to give over the course of the next 12 months. That could be the cumulative of what you give each week or lump sum, however it works best in your scenario. And uh, i just tell you how we do at home. We tell everybody, if you're not in a, if you're in a place where you just are not of a mind to give, don't give anything. This is never about anyone feeling awkward or pressured or coerced, but the way I think the Bible teaches is that we give out of a cheerful and willing heart. And so all we can do is throw out the vision and let God touch our hearts. God sees the need, and I believe the Lord's going to move here. And uh, so we're going to do some giving. Now, I'm going to talk some about giving in my preaching, but I came out here to preach a message specifically on the subject of giving, but... As this service has approached in the last couple of days, I just feel strongly pulled to revisit the passage of Scripture and the message that I have preached over the last two or three years several times. And uh, we'll just go to the Word of God and see what the Lord will do. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse number 1. Now, at the beginning of each psalm, there is, in little italic print, what we call a superscription. And the superscription uh, is technically not part of the first verse, but in many occasions, this superscription gives us a clue as to the occasion of the psalm, why it was written, who wrote it. And today I'm going to start reading Psalm 8 by reading the superscription because it's important to what the psalmist has to say. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David. So this lets us know that David wrote the psalm, but it is addressed to the chief musician upon Gittith. Now, the word Gittith is another word for a city that we're probably familiar with biblically, and that's the city of Gath, the hometown of Goliath. And it is believed that the psalm that we are about to read was written by David as a celebration song to commemorate his victory over the giant Goliath. So as we read through this psalm, let's just imagine the triumphant 17-year-old David standing there with the giant prostate at his feet, and let's celebrate this victory with him. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou hast visited him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Everyone say all things. God made man. He made you. He made me to have dominion over all of the works of his hands. And the psalmist said, thou hast put all things under his feet. Now we're going to read one more verse before we're seated over in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 2. I personally believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And he is writing here about the work of Jesus Christ. And in this portion of Hebrews, Paul quotes from the psalm that we just read. He said, Thou hast put all things, everyone say all things, in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Can you receive the word of the Lord with an amen? amen. Bless you. You can be seated. I'm going to preach today about our dominion potential. Our dominion potential. So David, when he wrote Psalm 8, God was moving on him and giving him the words of this psalm. Now, many times when David wrote the psalm, he wrote just around half of the 150 psalms that's in our Bible. Well, many times the Spirit of God would move on David and his pen would take on a prophetic quality. And while he was writing these particular psalms to commemorate particular occasions that were happening right then in Israel, on many occasions the psalm would have a larger meaning as it pointed ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This psalm is known as a messianic psalm. And it is speaking about Christ's incarnation to defeat Satan. Just like David has just celebrated a victory over the giant. Little boy David, righteous David, standing against the evil foe. And against all odds, he topples Goliath to the ground. This spoke towards the day when the greater son of David would come to face the giant of Satan, the adversary of all of our souls. 
And just like David was able to defeat the Goliath, when Jesus came and he went to the cross of Calvary, he toppled the power of Satan. Thank God for it. And now we still fight Satan, but we fight a foe that has been defeated. We have read the Bible. We understand the scheme of things, and we understand that God is going to win this thing. Satan can rage, and he is raging, but we are not afraid of what Satan's doing because we are united with Christ, and we share in the victory of the cross. And so the psalm that we read here emphasizes the fact that God gives dominion to his people over the foe. Everyone say dominion. Now that word dominion there is one that we don't use very often unless we're talking about voting machines in Nevada. But that kind of dominion is very far removed from biblical dominion. But when the Bible says that you and I are given dominion, that word is defined in the Hebrew as to rule, to tread down, or to crumble off. It's the idea of getting your foot on top of something, taking new territory, and incrementally moving forward and growing. So to have dominion means that you're riding life instead of life riding you. To have dominion means that you're growing and achieving victory. Now when God created Adam, he placed him in the Garden of Eden, and it was God's mandate to Adam to take dominion over all of the earth. Now, that would have been a wonderful thing had Adam been able to do that. Here God places him in the Garden of Eden, and the garden was really a prototype of what God wanted the entire world to look like. There was no sin in the garden. There was abundance there. Uh, it was a wonderful place. And had Adam not fallen into sin, I believe that over time he and Eve and their children and their grandchildren, they would have, as the human race grew, they would have expanded the borders of that garden until it encompassed the entire earth for the glory of God. But when Adam sinned, he lost a lot of his dominion potential. Now he could still grow a harvest, but the Lord told him that thorns and thistles would hinder his efforts in the field. He would work by the sweat of his brow and it meant that he had to put a lot of effort in to get just a little bit of return. And that is a good picture of how it is when you're living a life of sin and disobedience to the Word of God. It doesn't make life better. It makes life more difficult. It is hard to live in sin, but it is easy to live for Jesus. It just is. And so... God gave man the mandate to go take dominion. Adam messed that up when he brought sin into the picture. 
but it still does not take away from the fact that it is God's will and God's plan for man to live in dominion. And so we read in the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, about Adam and this matter of dominion. God said, go take dominion. Adam messed it up. He complicated things by uh, falling into sin. But the New Testament introduces us to Jesus. Now, Jesus is referred to by the Apostle Paul as the second Adam. And it's important for us to compare the first Adam with the second Adam. Because when Jesus came as the second Adam, he came to bring back and regain everything that the first Adam lost in sin. The first Adam gave in to self-will standing in a garden. But the second Adam prayed, not my will, but thy will be done in a garden. The first Adam brought in sin and death, but the second brought righteousness and life. The first Adam brought the human race under a curse, but the second Adam came to break the curse. The first Adam went to the grave and returned to dust. The second Adam did not see corruption and came out of the grave. The first Adam sinned standing by a tree. The second Adam broke the power of sin hanging on a tree. The first Adam brought reproach and he succumbed to Satan and sin. But the second Adam ushered many sons back into glory through his obedience. Simply put, Jesus came to restore to you and I the hope and the promise that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. When you get born again and filled with the Holy Ghost, you step into the family tree of the second Adam. And that means that your potential to take dominion over your world is restored. Now, the whole idea of, of, of ruling and reigning, being on top of things, operating from a position of faith and power is, is something we don't hear preached about a whole lot today because, frankly, very few of us feel like we live that way. Many of us live in, in continual struggle and Life sometimes feels like it's just one series of setbacks right after another. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there is a spiritual reality of, of power and dominion and sitting on the throne that is very much taught in the Word of God. Now I'm going to read a scripture from Luke chapter 1, and I'm not rambling about I'm, I'm going to tie this together here in just a few moments. But let me read to you what the angel told Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the point he was announcing that Jesus was going to be born. 
Scripture said, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now go back to the previous verse, verse 32. The angel said of Jesus that he would be given the throne of his father David. Now I have read this scripture a thousand times. At Christmas time we always visit the birth of Jesus and read these passages. And all my life reading that, I never noticed that last sentence there. That Jesus would be given the throne of his father David. What in the world does that mean? Why is that there? What does it have to do with the birth of Jesus? And what does it have to do with us? Well, let's talk a little bit about the throne of David. Under David's leadership, Israel reached a point where they had been given victory over all of their enemies. One verse said that David had rest from all of his enemies. So the throne of David is a throne that symbolizes total victory over every enemy. Another thing that happened under David is that Israel was brought into a place of, of prosperity that they had never been in before. No longer were people struggling to get by, but now the economy of Israel was better than it had ever been or ever would be. Something about a righteous throne brings with it tremendous economic benefits. And under David, there was a state of peace. Well, when the angel said Jesus is coming, he said that he will be given the throne of his father David. So in other words, everything that happened to Israel when King David was on the throne will also happen to the people of Jesus Christ when Jesus is on the throne. When Jesus steps into someone's life, he comes in to defeat the enemy. He comes in to bring peace and blessing into their life. When Jesus establishes his throne in Carson City, all who come under the lordship of Jesus Christ start experiencing victory, peace, and prosperity. That is the will of God. Now, the scripture said in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and I think it's about somewhere in the verse number 6, the Bible says that he has raised us up together and caused us to sit with Christ in heavenly places. And I want to illustrate this. Someone get me one of these chairs if they'll unhook. And I need, I need this good brother to come help me right here. What's your name? Brother Don. I want you to be Jesus. 
this should come natural for you. Okay, so here is Jesus on the throne. He has been given the throne of his father David. And as he sits on the throne, he is there in a posture of dominion over sin and over Satan and over all of the evil schemes of mankind. Now, I've just got to preach a little bit that Jesus is the ultimate winner in history. And he's going to be the ultimate winner. Jesus is Lord over our city. And one of the things we're doing here in this church is declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I've never been the Carson City that I can recollect. I've certainly never preached here. But I did some praying last night in my room, and I prayed here this morning. And let me just tell you people something. I, I'm, not, I'm not very smart with spiritual things. I don't know a lot about the spirit world. But I know there is one. And I know there are places where the enemy sets up strongholds in ge different geographical areas that are stronger than others. And if I have ever came into a town where I feel spiritual oppression, I feel it on this town. I feel that, that feeling of just push it down and suppress it feeling of that's just just there there's an atmosphere here that says the church is not going to prosper and the church is not going to prevail and when I get in feeling that feeling and I felt it in some places and times it doesn't make me feel defeated but it makes me want to bow up and say oh yeah And so I just want to declare so the powers that be can understand that Satan will not be the prevailing spiritual power in this city. But I'm here to declare that Jesus through this church will be the spiritual prevailing power in this city. Amen. So Jesus is here. He's on the throne. Jesus has vanquished the enemy. Amen. Stomp your feet, Jesus. He has put all things under his feet. And I want you to know that Jesus is not broke. Jesus is not feeling anxiety about tomorrow. He's on the throne. When we worship God, we worship a conquering God and a prevailing God. But I love what our verse said there in verse number 6 of Ephesians chapter 2. 
says when we get saved, that he's raised us up together. And we sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you know what happens when you get the Holy Ghost? You get right up there on the throne. And you're sitting on Jesus' lap. And all of a sudden, his vantage point becomes your vantage point. His place and position of power and dominion becomes yours when you unite to him through the baptism of the Spirit. Hallelujah. We need to learn to see the world through the prism of power that we have by being Spirit-filled believers. So, there is a place of power, faith. Whoever's controls the highest point of territory usually prevails in a battle. When you're sitting up there on the throne, everything looks different. Problems look different sitting on that throne. Now, one of the purposes of this service is we're talking about expanding this church, enlarging the capacity of, of this congregation to grow and to reach souls and do a work for the Lord in this city. We're talking about acquiring property, real estate, building, and whatever that looks like right now. And so for us to get there, it's important that we get in this place of mind where we see ourselves sitting on that throne with Christ, understanding that we are on the winning side of this. That's critical. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8. Let's, let's work this over for a minute. Now, the apostle here quotes the psalmist, and he said, Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, I love that. So that means under the feet of Jesus, that he is crushing the head of the devil. Under the feet of Jesus is poverty, sickness, and disease is under his feet. The temptations I battle under his feet. I love that. All things. Everyone say all things. But all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus ain't worried about a thing. He's got his foot on it. That's shouting material right there. Now, after that first sentence, you just got to see Paul. I don't know where he was when he wrote Hebrews. Maybe he was in prison. So I don't know. But I see a 
parchment here and a feather quill pen and a little flickering candle there to give light. He's really feeling the, the Lord and he's writing here. And he quotes from Psalms, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Dot. I can see him stop right there. He's meditating on the dominion of Christ. And then all of a sudden he feels a little something. He picks up that pen and he writes the second sentence. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Wow. Jesus got it all under control. He's got it all under control. Sentence one, we see the Lord on the throne in a place of dominion. Sentence number two, he reaffirms what he just said in sentence number one but with stronger language. But, everyone say but. The third sentence here doesn't flow. Now, if I were an English teacher and he was my student and he wrote that on a paper, I'd give him a big fat F. This is bad writing here. You made your proposition in sentence one, you amplified the proposition in sentence two. But in sentence three, you just unsaid everything you tried to say in sentence one and two. He's put all things in subjection under his feet. That's past tense. It's done deal. He left nothing that is not put under him. But verse th sentence three he says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Now, brother, take your throne and just move it over there about eight feet and, and sit there. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus, sit back on your throne. So right here, Jesus, in a place of power and dominion, and when you get the Holy Ghost, you're up there with him. Now, this is where we have been declared to be. But I'm afraid that most of us are not living in sentence one or sentence two. The reality for many of us is sentence three. It's the feeling that we know there is more for us. There is the feeling of having potential that is never tapped into. It's the frustrating feeling of having a promise from God, but the promise is always just beyond our grasp. It's the feeling a congregation can get when we need a building, but the building seems beyond our grasp. It's the feeling individuals in the church have and we know we could be doing more in life but it looks like we do so little and it's beyond our grasp. Yeah. 
We can see how it should be different. But instead of sitting on that throne with the Lord in a place of power and dominion, we're living way, way beneath our privileges. We're down in the molly grubs. I'd like to illustrate this. I just get down on the floor. Oh, I'm just telling you what, Brother Adams, it's just so hard out here. There's so many evil spirits. I just to feel them in the atmosphere. The economy's just bad. Oh, it's just tough times for the church. We're just barely getting by. So many people backsliding. So many things happening. I just don't know what the future's going to look like. Preachers come and preachers go. You know, we just, we're just working people around here. Yeah, I know we got to get a church building, but I just, you know what, it just, we're just common people. And we start talking about problems and we're just down in the molly grubs it's getting bad out there and I'm afraid we're fixing to get World War 3 started times are tough I just don't know if they'll ever be any different but we're going to hang on to Jesus and do the best we can and we kind of live down in this place of inertia place of wishing it was better but not believing it can be better wishing things would be different but in our heart not seeing that it will be but I'm here to preach to this church today about dominion potential the Bible said that we are seated with him in heavenly places the Bible said, as he is, so are we in this world. That's what the Bible says. And so that throne of dominion looks like it's 100 miles away from where I'm at right now. I'm all sprawled out in a place of defeat. I'm just trying to make it till Friday. Hearing all this preaching at church about dominion and victory and revival. I, I'm, I'm for all that, but that's just not how it is in my world. And so we just kind of all slump down. This, this, I mean, you, think, you think I'm being cute right now. This is, this is how some of you serve in God right now. But remember when I started, I talked to you about what dominion means. The word dominion means to tread. To take a step. And that's what we're going to do in this service. In order for us to go from where we are right now to where God wants us to be as a church, somewhere we got to take a step. But before we take a step, we got to do something else. We have to take a stand. Yeah. 
You can't take a step until you take a stand. So taking a stand means you get up on your feet and you flat-footed declare, we're going to do this. There's a long way from where I am to where I'm supposed to be. But this day, I'm declaring I'm going there. I'm getting there. I will be on that throne. My wife and I went to Memphis. We took a church, and we were the fifth pastor within an 11-year span of time. Our little church uh, was a place where preachers came to get their start in ministry till a better church opened up and they could go somewhere else. I'm just being crude about it, but just, just just the way it was. And for the first two or three or four or five years we was there, anytime we go on out of town to preach and vacation, people thought we was leaving to go check someplace else out. We got voted in with 100% of the votes, and we had 33 votes. And um, shortly after becoming the pastor, 13 people either died or backslid or quit the church. So it was slim pickings there for a little bit. Told the church the other day you could drove a, a semi-truck right up through the middle of our sanctuary on Sunday morning during church and not hit a soul. We were in a building uh, in, a, in a rough part of town. Memphis has uh, got some rough spots. The hoods know that. We had bullet holes in numbers of the windows there. Drive-by shootings were frequent. Um, when you left church in the evenings, uh, you drive around prostitutes many times out doing their deal right, right out on the street. You could buy any kind of drug within 100 yards of the church. We were in a tough spot. Building was falling apart, bare light bulbs hanging out of the ceiling. We had gray carpet, burgundy walls with wood paneling and peach accents. It stunk. The choir loft had a bunch of instrument cases stuck, stacked up in it and extra chairs and looked like a rummage sale. Uh, wallpaper on the platform was peeling off and every now and then a well-meaning soul would get up with a thumbtack and tack it up. And it was a place you would have been embarrassed if you'd have brought a visitor there to church. It was rough. The uh, secretary come to us the week after I became pastor and said, no, Brother Adam, she said, we have bills due. And she said, if I, I wrote out all the checks for the bills, she said, if I mail all the checks, Seems like she said it was somewhere around $2,300 that we would be overdrawn. And she said, so I can't mail all the checks. So what do we need to do? Well, my first thing come to mind is I wanted to tell her to call the pastor. <laughs> then it occurred to me as of last week, I were the new pastor. And uh, so we robbed Peter and paid Paul, and we figured out a way to make it work. And... It was tough. We was, man, we, this was before Apple Maps and iPhones and stuff. It was 
you had to have a GPS just to find it. Most of them GPSs couldn't find their churches. We were so back little residential neighborhood, and it was real tough. But I'd gotten words from God about building a church and, and a new building, and, and God had dropped it in my spirit that we come to Memphis, what I feel like for a lifetime, and we come to build a church, not in a little neighborhood, but to build a church that would service a whole legion. So one of the first things I had to do as a young pastor is I had to make up my mind I was here to stay. Now God may tell me to go to Africa tomorrow, and I hope you don't. But barring him telling me something different, I'm here to stay. And I had to be willing to make a declaration and make a covenant. I'm here to put my roots down. No people, no money, everything looks like it's against us. But God called me to my city to have revival, to have dominion. So, in the midst of all that, I started declaring, we're going to build a church. We're going to do it. And when I preached that and said that, you know, you get a few little, the old timers like, oh, God bless him. Isn't that cute? We've heard that before. You just wait until another church opens up and gets him out of here. That's what the last few guys said. And I realized pretty quick. You want to tell you when you got 20 or 30 people coming to church, I think we only had like three or four men working. You realize pretty quick that you don't have money to go get a new church or buy a property. I started looking around the property and we wanted something right on the interstate and everything I could see was millions of dollars and it wasn't happening. Our building was falling apart. So I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to just fix up this place, and we're going we're gonna to max it out. And that's what we did. We fixed it up, and we maxed it out. But I started doing just what you guys are doing right here. We started no pressure. But see, you know what? We're going to give the building fund every week, and we're going to raise up some money. And I can remember... We worked so hard. We got that first hundred thousand dollars. It took us, and it took us over a year to raise a hundred thousand dollars. It was the hardest hundred thousand I ever raised in my life. And uh, when we crossed that hundred thousand dollar mark, uh, we got a, we had somebody make a cake, a great big old cake, and wrote on there about that hundred thousand dollar breakthrough. We all ate the cake and we celebrated. And man, another six months, we had another hundred raised. And people started rallying, and after we saw that start going up, people started understanding that, you know what, when you get a bunch of people that do just a little bit every week, it is incredible what that does to a church, not just financially, 
but it shifts something in the mentality of the church. And I can remember we raised that money, and we raised that money, and finally we had raised up to about $600,000. Now, $600,000, uh, that's no money out here in Nevada, but for my little world, that was a lot of money. And it was certainly more than anything our church had ever had. But when I would go look for property, property was, we had to have a, a minimum of five acres. That's what I was looking for. We had to, in our county, you had to have five acres to build a church. And I'd look for property, and we, everything we looked at was just that we could afford was, I mean, it was, you wouldn't, it, it wasn't nice at all. Realtor called me one day. He said, uh, I found a piece of property. It's 10 acres, and you guys can afford this one. So I drove up to it with the realtor, and the driveway into this property was shared with the parking lot of an adult bookstore. <laughs> and the property backed up behind it. And I thought, dear God, every time we come to church, people are going to see us pulling in now this place. They're not going to know what we're doing. And so that's, that's where we was at. I got so discouraged. And even though we had $600,000, we might as well not even had $5 because it was a drop in the bucket. And I started realizing that if we're going to build a church we're going to have to use this for a down payment then take a big mortgage just to buy property and then pay it off, then build a building. And, and how in the world are we ever going to do this? And it seemed unattainable. It seemed like no matter how much we worked and saved, the, the goalpost just kept moving. And so I quit looking for property. We just... So we're going to have revival. We're going to work with it. But we kept, the key was we kept on giving. And I can remember one Monday evening, it was in the year 2012. It was a Monday night. Uh, we had, uh, anybody ever hear of Brother Sam Howard? Brother Sam Howard was preaching revival for us. In fact, uh, he's in Memphis today taking care of the church while I'm out here, so. Brother Howard was preaching a revival, and uh, but my wife and I went up to the church on a Monday night to pray. It was just her and I in the sanctuary. And when I was praying, a faith come on me. And I didn't know it, but it got on Christy too. And and the Holy Ghost come down, and me and her praying, and in a way that I could not explain. We both felt a nudge. So it was, it was like God was saying, okay, now it's time. And we talked after praying. We both felt the same thing. So the next day, I called the realtor. I said, we're going to buy property. And I said, I need you to find something that's right on Interstate 40. We want freeway frontage. So how much you got to spend? We got $600,000. And uh, he kind of laughed at me. He said, well, you asked a hard bargain, Pastor. I'll just see. He looked around and 
couldn't find him, so he called me one day and said, you know what, you're looking for the property in the freeway. He said, we, there is no property on the freeway for that kind of money. Everything that's for sale is for millions of dollars. He said, you're going to have to just settle. You're going to have to get off in some back area and find something that will work, something small. While he was talking to me, he was in a big office building, and he was in a cubicle. And another realtor was walking down the hall. And when he walked by the door of Mr. Charles' cubicle, he overheard the conversation. And this realtor said, we can't get you nothing on the freeway. And when the realtor hung up, he comes back and he says, uh, he said, Mr. Charles, I heard you talking to somebody. You need property. He said, you know, I just got a foreclosed piece of property. And it's already been developed with the utilities, and the developer went bankrupt. He said, uh, it's 21 acres, and it's all fronted on Interstate 40, and it's in the nicest part of Memphis. And... Uh, uh, Mr. Charles said, well, how much are they wanting for it? He said, they're wanting $510,000. And so I'm talking to you because you know what? I, I just, talking pastor, I feel there's some commonalities here. This kind of stuff God's going to do right here. Mr. Charles called me up. He said, pastor, now I got some good news. We got, There's this piece of property. Now, I drive by this property every day of my life. Every day, every day, every single day I drive out several times and I never saw it. I didn't know it was there. He said, there's a piece of property, it's 21 acres on the interstate, only $510,000. You guys, and of course, me being a man of great faith, I said, well, what's, what's the catch? There's something wrong, something not right here. They try and pull one over on us. He said, no, he said, I and uh, so long and short, uh, my wife and I went and looked at it. The church looked at it. And uh, it was a pretty piece of property. So I went back to the realtor. I said, yeah, I don't know if I can want to pay 510000 for this. <laughs> I said, he said, what would you pay? I said, I'll pay four hundred and fifty. He said, well, you need to make an offer, but Long and short of it, we closed on that property for $450,000. 21 acres in the nicest part of town on the interstate and wrote a check for it. We had been flat broke just a few years before that, but the good people of God have pulled together just given a little bit every week. Hallelujah. Well, we bought that property, and I thought, man, I, the battle is over. We got a couple of contractors. I said, okay, uh, we need to build a building. And when I figured out how much payment we could afford, put all our numbers together, we said, you know what? We, we can build a building for $3 million. And I talked to the contractors. I said, uh, can you guys build us a church to accommodate us? What well, everything we need for three million? They said, "Oh yeah, no problem at all." 
So we hired an architect, spent a quarter million dollars on drawings, and when they put them out to bid, the bids come back like at $5.6 million. And I thought, oh, God. So we drew them again. And the bid come back at over $4 million, And we could not do it. And I can remember having that piece of property. And we drew plans, and we just could not afford to build the building. And I remember the last, after that second round of bids, I walked in, met with the engineer and the architect and the contractor. And they looked at me and they said, Pastor, we're sorry. We've done everything we know how to do. We just can't make a building happen for what you can afford. And they said, it's been a pleasure working with you. Now, I don't cry over nothing. I probably wouldn't shed a tear at my own mom's funeral. I'm just an old hard-hearted guy. But boy, I fought tears sitting there in that corporate building. and They all come by and shook my hand, and I choked them back until I got out in the truck. And the contractor, he was not being smart or, or ugly, but he meant well when he did it. He come by and shook my hand. He said, Pastor, it's the best advice I can give you. Just sell that property. He said, go way out in the country and find you a little spot. There's not too many codes, and we can build you a little building, and we can make this happen, but you're never going to do it. But I got out there in the car, and it was one of the darkest days. We'd raised money. We'd tried, and we'd tried. It looked like God had worked miracles only to let it all fall apart. And I get home that night, and I'm feeling more depressed than I've ever felt. I know I got to go to church Wednesday and I got to face the good people of our church and we've got to break the news that it just don't look like we're going to get the build. After all we've poured into this. And my phone rings. And it's Pastor Jeff Dykes, who's an elder in my life. It's late that Monday evening and he says, well, Adams, my wife and I have been praying in our church, and he said a spirit of intercession got on us. He said, we're praying for you. He said, I don't know what's going on, but he said, the Lord told me to call you and let you know he knows where you're at and everything's going to be okay. And I'm talking about dominion potential. I'm talking about a throne. This is where we're supposed to be. But for years, it was like I had my face mashed in the mud. But on that day, I knew I got a word from God. I did not know how he was going to build a church. I did not know how he was going to afford it. But I knew one day we're going to sit up there on that throne and we're going to do this in Jesus' name. So I got up in front of our church and I told them what happened. I said, but we're going to do it. Well, things come to a standstill, but the key was that building fund we kept giving. The key is you got to keep doing it when it don't look like nothing's happened. And 
We waited a year, two years. We was able to raise up that $600,000, just miraculous. The people kept giving without even seeing something tangible. That was what was miraculous. And God just let us get a hold of a contractor. And pieces come together. And we drew up plans, and they bid out for budget. And we said, okay, we're going to get this started. And we started building. And it was amazing how God started helping us. And while we're building, we got the building all framed up. A situation happened. And it was a good situation. There was an individual who loves our church very much that had had a had a, had a had a legal situation, had it for many, many years. And they had come to me years previous and said, you know, if this thing ever goes just the right way and we get some money out of this, we want to give a big offering to the church. Just pray for a good outcome. I said, well, sure, you know, but you know I've heard that before. And uh, so we prayed about it and I guess really didn't think too much. And as our building's under construction, we had gotten a big old loan, and we were going to make it happen, but it was going to be tight. When we drew up the plans, we didn't have money for a sound system, didn't have money for seats, didn't have money to get everything done, but we just were going to go out in faith. And so what happens, here's how you get, amen, you got to start taking steps. Because there's something about after you say you're going to do it, you got to start stepping out. You got to tread. You got to just a little bit. You got to start making some commitments here. And I get a text one weekend that said, Pastor, please pray. We just got an alert from our bank that a large sum of money hit our account. And we are wondering if it's this settlement we've been thinking about for years. Well, hallelujah, Jesus' name, you know. Then Sunday afternoon, I get a text and said, Pastor, could uh, I meet with you before church tonight? Now, you typically don't ever want to meet with your preacher before church. I don't take meetings before church. I don't counsel before church. I don't want to have all that stuff on my mind when I'm fixing to go preach. But there's an exception to every rule. And I just thought, well, you know, this particular time we'll make an exception. And uh, this person comes in my office before church, said, you know, Pastor, uh, you know, we've been so blessed, and, you know, this, this situation comes through. And I said, yeah. So you know what? We just love this church and love what God's doing here. I said, mm-hmm. And, you know, we just really believe and we want to be a part. I said, uh-huh. And I uh, said, you know, we, uh, we had made a commitment to God that this thing ever went through, we was going we to do our part. I said, uh-huh. And so this individual hands me a check that's folded in half. 
Now, believe it or not, this is an unusual situation for me to be in as a pastor. For someone, typically if someone gives an offering in our church, they put it in the offering basket or, you know, that for someone to just come hand me an offering is, we, we just don't do that. So this person hands me this check and it's folded. I have no idea what this is. And so all of a sudden, I remember distinctly, what am I supposed to do with this check? Because I thought I could do several things. If I just took the check and stuck it in my pocket, that might seem a little tacky. If I take it and just say thank you and don't look at it, that might look like I don't care and and not really appreciative of whatever they're doing. But if I open it and look at it, that might come across as looking tacky or greedy. So like, what do you do? Do you look at it or not look at it? You put it in your pocket or hold it in your hand. What's the protocol? I never got taught that in Preacher 101. So just standing there, I thought, well, I'll just compromise all this, you know. So I just real nonchalantly opened it up. And my first, I was like, well, this is like $10,000. I thought, no, I didn't read that right. I did not say that. So what did I do? And uh, I looked, and I read check. And it was a check for $1 million. $1 million. Now, I'm talking to Carson City right now. The same God in Memphis in a similar set of circumstances is the same God. There's just something about it when a church gets a dogged determination that we are going to step into that posture of dominion in our city. Well, all of a sudden, things got easier. It turned out the building that was going to cost $3 million ended up costing $4 million, and God knew that God made a way. But we had had a man of God come through, and he gave me a word. That it seemed weird at the time. He said, he said, Brother Adams, he said, I need to tell you about that scripture where Jesus told him to go to prepare the feast in the upper room, and they walked in, and he said, they, he said they walked in the room, and it was fully furnished. And when this preacher said this to me, I felt the Holy Ghost. And he just started shaking his head, and he said it was fully furnished. He'd speak in tongues, and he said, I don't know what that means, but it's just fully furnished. Okay, this is like two years before he built the building. He says, fully furnished. He said, that's a word from you. Okay, okay. And what that is, but that's great, you know. Well, we built that building. We spent our money. and We got up to the month of December. And it dawned on me that all the furniture in Sunday school rooms, that somebody has paid for that. And we had to have chairs to sit on. And here we are a month away from moving in our new building. 
and we did not have money to buy furniture for the building. What are we going to do? Well, now, y'all believe in Christmas out here? If you don't, it's a good time to start. We, we, we kind of like it back where I'm from. Um, but it was Christmas time, and a person come up to me after I preached one service and said, Pastor, you know, we got, we got this person that don't come to church here, but uh, they sent a Christmas card. And they said that they didn't want you to have to worry about nothing getting in this new building. And uh, I said, well, okay. So, man, I opened up the Christmas card. It was one of them good cards where something falls out when you open, you know. <laughs> Don't you love it? You don't even read the card after that. I don't even want that card. <laughs> but a check fell out from someone that never laid eyes on that building we were building. Someone wasn't a member of our church. And I picked up that check. And would you believe it was a check for $100,000? And I remembered what the man of God said to us. It's going to be fully furnished. Now I'm just going to tell you. God's doing big stuff. And I'm done preaching today. We're fixing to give. But I can feel that resolute determination in you people that the people in our church have. We're going to plant a church in this town. And we're going to do it in Jesus' name. We got challenges in front of us. Pastor told me last night, he said, man, the property's expensive here. It doesn't matter how expensive the property is. you got people sold out and committed to do it. And, and that's what we're going to do. Why don't we stand together? Get your pledge cards, and we're going to pray over them. Now here, in just a minute, we're going to uh, we're gonna make a commitment. Now, I haven't had a chance to talk with Pastor hood in detail about this. So, Pastor, if I say something that's different than what you think, you fix it when I'm done. But uh, I'll just tell you how we do in Memphis when we do this. We do a yearly service and half the years like this. It's been the key. When you make a pledge like this, you're doing it in good faith. And every year there's people that They'll make a pledge, maybe they lose their job or something happens. And then they have to come to me feeling embarrassed and say, you know what, Pastor? We really felt we intended to do this, but these situations happen. So now I just get up before we even do our pledge and say, look, we get that. You just let's do this in good faith. And if life happens tomorrow, we get it. And I think your pastor gets it. We understand that. And this is not where you got to feel like you got to hang your head if you're slipping here next month and not able to uh, fulfill a pledge just because that's just, life is that way.
But that's really the exception. I think God's going to help us. Now, we're about to pray that God would speak to us amount that we'll give from this week, this time in February, until February next year. This might be something you do every week. It might be a lump sum, however it works. But what's the cumulative total of what you believe you'll be able to do to the building this year? Now, we're going to pray, and here's how this works. Typically, the first amount that will drop in your spirit is going to be from the Holy Ghost. The second amount that will come to your mind as you mull it over will be the flesh. And the third amount that you hear in some cases will be the enemy. So what I've learned is we just need to let the Holy Ghost lead us. And if God leads us to do something, he's going to make a way for us to get it done. He knows what the need is. Now, I want us to pray right now. God, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for this church and for the preacher that's in this church and the good people of God that are here. God, you see the need in front of us. God, I know that you have called this church to rule and to reign, to be in a place of dominion. God, I'm asking you right now to open up the doors of heaven over this congregation. I pray for new clients. I pray for new businesses. I pray for promotions. I pray that there would be bonuses and raises. I pray, God, for new partnerships to come about. I pray that you would send people. I pray that you would bless us coming in and going out. I pray that the prosperity of God would be upon this congregation. And I'm asking you to enlarge the earning capacity of this church. God, I pray that you would do it for the sake of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would open up a door for this church to grow and to expand in the name of Jesus. And God, while I'm praying, I'm asking you to speak an amount into every member's mind right now. What would you have us to do? God, drop it in our spirit. And as you put it in our spirit, we commit that we're going to do it by your help and by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And everybody said in Jesus' name, amen. We need some giving music right now. Write your name, write the amount on your pledge cards, and then I'd like the ushers to come up here and stand at the front, and then we're going to march up here, and we are going to turn those cards in, and let's do it with a spirit of victory and a spirit of cheerfulness in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. If you have your card filled out, feel free to bring it to the front at this time. And let's obey the Holy Ghost. And let's just see what God can do as we pull together.
Come on, let's praise the Lord all across this house. Hallelujah. He's in this building. Come on, do you feel the presence of God? God is confirming his word right now. Come on, if you have a need in your life, why don't you lift it up right now?